Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. And today we'll be talking some Judith Butler, a lecture she gave, the Adorno Prize lecture, back on September 11th, 2012. And uh, relating that a bit to some protest movements uh, that have arisen lately, the the yellow vests, the yellow jackets, as well as uh, some movements that have been around a bit longer, like Black Lives Matter. That's what we're going to kick off doing. Yeah. Um, yeah, you, you uh, for fans of philosophy, of um, a very arcane language that's difficult to decipher, this is, this is right <laughs> up your alley. <laughs> that's right. And we've um, mentioned Judith Butler a few times already, um, but in case you missed those episodes, she's a... Um, Philosopher at, at, teaches at Berkeley. Uh, she is a queer theorist, a critical theorist, and uh, has been informed a lot by the Frankfurt School, like Theodora Adorno, who gets mentioned and who the prize um, lecture was named after, uh, informed by Foucault, Arendt, and, and, and others, uh, but has, has a lot of influence in um, various political philosophies uh, that understand um, the ways in which performativity and as we'll see the ways in which our our bodies and speech uh, are implicated in political concern and political action so uh yeah we'll we'll try to sift through the arcane language and make it uh accessible and and hopefully relevant for you yeah um maybe we should start alexi can you can you walk us through this to just just kind of give us a sort of a gloss of your read of the argument because you know, I I, sure. I read it and um, had some thoughts. Uh, I don't know if they're the right thoughts or or the the fairest thoughts, but right. uh, let's get the professionals' did, did take you... on it first. <laughs> okay, sure. So the lecture is entitled "Can One Lead a Good Life in a Bad Life?" And this is a question that uh, Adorno posed, who uh, of course is the philosopher. Uh, for which the prize lecture was named. So she's taking his question and uh, meditating on it, right? And and we can break down, part of the the lecture is breaking down what that question means, right? Can one lead a good life and a bad life? And and so there's a a lot of things we can dig into in here, but but overall it's it's kind of a moral or ethical question that one might ask, and, and that very often people do ask themselves, you know, how can I live a good life, how can it be a good person? And that's often framed in the kind of modern liberal uh, sense of the autonomous individual, right? Separated from time, space, each other. (laughs) And we think of kind of just, so, you know, this is going against this uh, thing we're immersed in, which is this notion of, oh, I'm a good person. If I I mean, I had a student once who said, uh, yeah, all that philosophy you're telling me is great, but I think I could be a good person just playing video games and ignoring the world. Uh, and I think a lot of people think that their private decisions, right, are what constitute and, and the consequences, right, are what constitute a good life for them. It might mean they make a lot of money. It might mean they have a good relationship with a spouse or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or family. It might mean that they just are happy being a loner. Uh, but it's definitely this kind of modern notion of whatever happiness means to you is what's good. And good is definitely individual and cut off from the reality around you, the others around you. And so... Um, 
that's a good starting point at least like that's that's something that's that's going to be uh addressed in her in her lecture is that so far tracking with what you saw at the beginning yeah yeah i mean it 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 it, it struck me as like whenever as whenever i read any like critical theorist type of like the the rhetoric of it is always sort of vaguely irritating like i think that sure. what she's trying to say is is basically correct and defensible and pretty interesting but it's like you know to my eye as a as a as a hack journalist scribbler it's just written horribly you know it's just like really <laughs> elaborate language that is way more complicated uh, and jargony than it needs to be but yeah you know this idea of how do you you know n- navigating this question of living a good life, making good decisions in an, in an age in which you are hemmed in from every direction by, you know, external circumstances, basically. And, you know, how do you, how do you choose to, or how do you like shape different structures or help shape different, you know, politics and, you know, societies such that, you know, you are not hemmed in, in such a way. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so that, that's, that's right. I think like, um, to, to not defend necessarily all of the kind of arcane or overly verbose language, if you will, uh, some of it is, is like very referential to other philosophers and other works that if, if the, if the references are caught, it'll, it'll mean a lot more. Um, and of course, we've talked on the podcast a lot about this notion of the good life as being kind of a, uh, a classical, uh, especially Aristotelian notion of um, what politics should be orient- oriented towards, right? Like uh, the common good, human flourishing, this is what um, what it means for us to, to be political together, to, to live in community together, right? Um, but kind of what she's she's pointing out, right, is that what that means is contingent on your time and place and also contingent on what we've talked before, which is on having uh, mere life or having the ability to, to like at least survive first. So she kind of pulls in Hannah Arendt and starts talking about like the conditions for life and the social relations involved. Um, so, you know, the first thing I think that might be worth um, laying out is like, what is worth digging into in here? Do you think? And then we can maybe go to her actual language and, and, and talk about it. Um, but I'll start with, with you and see what you think is worth talking about beyond what you just said. Uh, and then maybe expand on it, if you don't mind. Yeah, so um, the question that I was trying to extract here is, like, what is, what is her sort of positive program, you know? And so she, you know, she talks about, uh, you know, people being... Uh, subject to i can't remember exactly what the way that she puts being hemmed in by society but uh you know resistance to that the precarity of life precarity yeah yeah um and um she says uh like towards the end um Quote, when it works, there is a performative enactment of radical democracy in such movements that alone can articulate what it might mean to lead a good life in the sense of a livable life. I've tried to suggest that precarity is the condition against which several new social movements struggle. 
Such movements do not seek to overcome interdependency or even vulnerability as they struggle against precarity. Rather, they seek to produce the conditions under which vulnerability and interdependency become livable. And, you know, what I'm the way I sort of translate that is that, uh, you know, basically what, what people are sort of rooting around towards is some sort of like socialist reordering of the political economy. Um, you know, so because I'm not sure if she would agree with this exactly, but like the, you know, she talks about vulnerability and interdependency as like. In neoliberalism, you know, people like they, 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 there's a sort of inherent struggle to escape from the the dependence on other people, but that is absolutely impossible. You can't, you know, you you can't escape from the fact that we live in an interdependent system. Like that's what the economy is. Even if you're really right. rich, what being rich gives you is the ability to command others to do what you want. You know, if you can't be like wealth in a Robinson Crusoe island means nothing because it, it, you know, you can't, you can't do anything with it. Um, that's right. That, that's why labor has power to when it organizes, it has power because capital requires the laborers, right? Exactly. Yes. Um, and, and so, you know, you're not trying to get rid of inter- interdependency. You're, tr- you're trying to restructure interdependency through uh, and she doesn't say this but it would be you know things like uh you know the welfare state uh union rights and such uh your basic kind of socialist social democratic structures which would make people's precarity you know insofar as there is inescapable precarity that we you know might be it by a meteor or something that is broadly shared that it, that if it is possible to rescue people they will be rescued you know um and that you know again i'm not the the i'm sure it's not just i'm sure there's an element of unfairness here and me me you know this is my blinkered philistine pig ignorance coming out again but uh that that strikes me as like um uh kind of you know one interpretation of what she's getting at here so yeah, I, th- I think that's that's good as far as it goes. I think there's more to it, and I think the reason uh, it can be more interesting is the way that it can ultimately situate and help to explain and understand what's powerful and interesting about movements uh, like Black Lives Matter and potentially the Yellow Vest, which we can talk about too. Um, but sure. like here, so here's where the philosophy gets interesting. Okay, so politics kind of implicitly assumes that it's oriented to what is good, right? And everybody thinks they know what is good and they're, they're seeking um, some sense of the good, whether it's their, they think the good should just be everyone's own self-interest or whatever it is, or, you know, the evangelical conservatives think it's uh, whatever it is they think it is, right? But, like, part of what she's saying is that, like, some people's lives are treated in a way that they can't pursue the good life in politics because their lives aren't even treated as lives. Right. And this, this kind of connects up to the disposable future stuff that, that Brad Evans wrote about, but like, yeah. um, you know, you know, she, she, she writes those powers that organize life, the powers that differentially dispose lives to precarity as part of a broader management of populations through governmental and non-governmental means. And that established set of measures for differential value of life itself 
Um, and then she goes on, they determine like whose lives matter, right? Whose lives are grievable. Um, and then a little further on, she says, um, the question becomes most acute for someone, anyone who already understands him or herself to be a dispensable sort of being, one who registers at an effective and corporeal level that his or her life is not worth safeguarding, protecting, and valuing. This is someone who understands that she or he will not be grieved, for if his or her life were lost, and so one for whom the conditional claim I would not be grieved for is actively lived in the present moment. Um, and so you can think of like the the refugee caravan. You can think of uh, the black bodies that are killed by police uh, or thrown, you know, into the prisons and, and under mass incarceration. You can think of uh, the, the soldiers and civilians uh, whose bodies are um, not really grieved amidst all the, the wars that we don't pay attention to. You can think of any number of, you know, the poor. You can think of uh, even, I mean, it's not quite this extreme, but even for the government shutdown, the 500,000 people who won't be getting paychecks, right? Like, uh, there, there, are, there are people in politics, uh, but especially the more, more marginalized that I spoke of, um, whose lives aren't considered as grievable or um, as life, really. You know, it's, it's not part of the calculation. Right? Yeah. And, and that's so I think that's an important like theoretical. Again, to the extent that philosophy is helpful, it helps us understand why, like, why does Black Lives Matter so uh, powerful? Right. And I think it's because they're saying look, right now our lives don't matter politically or socially, right? And like, if black lives matter, then all lives matter because we're currently the ones that are ignored and, and disposable. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it it strikes me, uh, um, you know, she says in there that, that of, course she, of course the argument isn't that, that the people are literally disposable or that no one grieves them. Of course, everyone just about has some sort of family or friends that do grieve them when they die. It's just the question of the broader context. And there's, you know, I mean, a very, very common example. I can remember this when I was a kid, when there would be like a plane crash, you know, overseas someplace. And it would be like, Oh, 200 people died, including two Americans. And we'll give you their life stories coming up. And then a couple of, you know, I remember there was like some months later, uh, it was like, oh, there's an earthquake in Turkey and 40,000 people died. And it was just a like a one day story. And it was like, yeah, we don't care about them. Like that. I mean, it was just blatantly the, the not even the subtext of the of the way the coverage was organized. It was the text. It was like a bunch of like basically insects were killed by a landslide. And uh, here's sports. Um, yeah, no, that's right. And like in, in, in social psychology, I guess that's called proximity bias, you know. Um, but politically there's work being done too. There are two things that makes me think of one there there's work being done when say, uh, (laughs) look, the, the, the media and the powers that be in leadership certainly wants to valorize soldiers who have fallen when that can help serve kind of a jingoistic uh, military interventionist um, spirit and, and try to galvanize the desire for more war, right? Although if it comes to a place where, like, there's a reason we don't see all the caskets coming home anymore, right? When it when it becomes so clear that the, the, the toll is not worth whatever it is we're doing, then the powers that be don't want us to see or feel uh, and grieve for those soldiers, right? So, like, whose lives are grieved in a way is, like, a, a function of what's politically useful to power and capital, I think. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of soldiers, you mentioned before, like all these federal employees being uh, being furloughed. And, you know, these are people who are pretty high status, I think, you know, in the grand scheme of things. They're certainly not, uh, you know, impoverished black, um, you know, detainees and who haven't been convicted of anything in Rikers Island. Um, but at the same time, you know, you know, who is getting paid is the military, you know, and, and that. Yep. That's not a that's not a decision I would quibble with. That's like pretty much the first rule of avoiding a military coup is don't cut off the soldiers for no reason. Uh, but at the same time, it's like it's really obvious. Like you, you, in this sort of a a tense like a political a tangle, um, the priorities come out. And priority number one is the men with guns matter the most. And all these fiddly bureaucrats that are just like, you know, writing social security checks or whatever, you know, whatever. I'm not sure. I I think the checks are going to keep coming. But, you know, that, that sort of thing, Department of Agriculture, whatever. Yeah, who cares? Like, whatever they're doing doesn't matter. They're not shooting anyone. Yeah. 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 And, and the other thing I would say is that the difference between uh, an earthquake or tsunami or, or even um, some horrible ethnic cleansing somewhere else in the world is uh, we more directly are supposed to be literally in charge of the lives in our polis and our political community, the United States of America. Right. And the, and the people that, that are, that are uh, literally spatially within our borders, citizens or otherwise are under our purview and care and supposed to be the the reason for which we actually have some political unity, which is to like pursue the common good, right, and to help everyone flourish. Um, and but so, so like another cool thing that I think is helpful in the Butler is this discussion of um, Arendt and the pr- private public distinction, where I think a lot of people operate as if the basic needs being met for people is something that's pre-political, right? And so, like, th- there was, of course, historically this tension in which only the property class needed to be political because that the law was about protecting property and, and helping the property class gain more wealth and so forth. And what did you care about, you know, legislation uh, if you didn't have property because that's the point of government is to help people prosper in their oikos and their households and everything, right? But... Um, but like, if you go back to uh, Aristotle and then to Arendt, the good life requires um, mere life. It requires sustenance. And so in a way, people protesting because they are not uh, able to live the good life because their lives literally are unlivable. And whether that means they're imprisoned, whether that means they're poor, whether that means right they're, they're discriminated, um, those actions are those are political. Those protests or other forms of resistance are forms of political action, not pre-political action, because those people, those bodies, are part of the community and they deserve the, the at least right the capacity to live the good life, which they don't already have. And we can't just start politics right at a line where anyone who's already thriving or already able to thrive are the only people considered. And so like, it's one of these, um, you know, boundary drawing things where politics is much broader than people think. And it's not just, uh, and this is why it's not just a, uh, you know, Orrin Hatch and Ted Kennedy are buddies. And isn't that great kind of situation? It's like, no, there are vast populations of people who don't even have access to like 
politics and, and, and the, the field in which decisions of power are made to help people thrive. And that's super important to understand, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, <clears throat> I, I, uh, kind of, you know, cordially dislike the, 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 the phrase bodies as it's used in, in leftist vocabulary nowadays. I feel like it's, um, sure, sure. I feel like it kind of reinforces the thing that it's trying to illustrate, you know, like namely the kind of dehumanization of, of people. But yeah, exactly. You know, the, the, um, the idea that that uh, people, in order to even have a conversation about the good life, to 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 get into that area of being able to consider that, they need a certain material baseline, you know, food, water, shelter, clothing, um, you know. Uh, and security from, you know, violence of various kinds, whether it's from, you know, agents of the state or, or criminals or bandits or whatever. And right, or only then yeah. can you, you know, can you be, I guess this is sort of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs type of a, type of a uh, argument here. But, but yes, I think that's absolutely, absolutely correct in that people are, you know, like Black Lives Matter, like Occupy Wall Street, and these uh, these yellow vest protests that we that we may discuss later, are um, attempting to to sort of you know vault into that sort of like prefigurative state to where you could actually you know maybe you could say that like this is this is the objective of hashtag full communism. You know, is is <laughs> is where everyone would have the ability to actually think about this and decide it for themselves, because all of those things are like squared away. You don't have to think about them. You don't have to worry about them ever. You know, it's just it's you know as as much as could is you know setting aside random strokes or meteor strikes or whatever. Um, you're set, and then yeah. we can start thinking. You know about what do we want what does that mean right and, and let me push back a little bit i agree with you about bodies in the sense that they that the discussion of bodies as instead of human beings can be something that kind of um you know reduces somebody to to kind of an abstraction but the point of the actual philosophy is that instead of you know the stalin quote right one death is a tragedy a million is a statistic yeah um so much of the violence that's done to actual human beings is so abstract and conceptualized and, and spoken of in like a theoretical sense that it actually, so, so what, what we're talking about here is the marches actually put into view the physical human beings and their bodies that in various protests are actually, you know, like in Tiananmen Square facing the tank or tying yourself to a tree or, or just marching in the street or, you know, um, fighting uh, the fascists or like clashing with the police, like actual physical bodies coming together are seen in it's a, it's, it's a way of being politically recognized because, uh, your Rosa Parks is refusing to move. So it's a body refusing to move, right? It's a, yeah. it's a Buddhist monk, a Buddhist monk lighting his body on fire. Like, so in other words, th this is a form of political speech, 
uh, through bodily action, inaction, uh, various uses of that which makes you human to show that you are there, that you are human and should be seen, right? And recognized. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's fair. That's fair. Um, you know. And so, like, that's the protests in that way are kind of an interest because you look at, say, um, Black Lives Matter or Occupy or the Yellow Vests, and we'll maybe disambiguate them in a minute, but, and you're like, what do they want? What's the program? What's the policy? But there's something before that that seems more fundamental. It's like, we are humans here that have not been heard or seen. Forget about like what policy can pacify us. Like we need to be seen and understood as part of the community and and we have not been, right? And that's the first thing everyone needs to understand, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what what just uh, maybe just as a little bit of an aside, what distinguishes the the you know, Black Lives Matter protests from like the Tea Party protests? You know, presumably these these uh, elderly Fox News folks on their Medicare scooters are are they also have bodies and that they're putting them into the you know political arena, so to speak, there at um, Capitol Hill in two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Um, is there a meaningful difference there? Would you say? Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um... I would say there's a couple things to think about. Um, one is what is motivating the people who are aggregating, right? What What is um, bringing them into the public sphere to protest? What is, um, what is the message and, and, and what is the meaning that you can derive from it, right? So like, I do think that some of the anger from from the Tea Party was legitimate. Now, I also think uh, there are, I mean, this goes back to kind of when we were talking about the Proud Boys and various other um, groups that are alt-right, right-wing fascists, whose anger and um, kind of grievance might be correct in terms of what they feel their life is but incorrect in their translating the source of the problem and therefore who they're calling upon to fix it. Although you would get some very confused people like get your hands off my Medicare for the Tea Party, right? Get your, get your government hands off my Medicare, right? Um, but I think the fear was real. And I do think like uh, there, there's not anything necessarily legitimate or illegitimate about people aggregating you have to like look at the so let's look at like black lives matter right so if you look at black lives matter it's a group of people whose message in coming together is to say um our lives have not been seen as legitimate or recognized and we are calling for that to change we are calling to be seen um we are we are not demanding anything specifically right so unlike um the tea party which is has a program already. So this is an, another interesting thing that, that occurs to me. So the Tea Party is like reduce government spending, lower taxes, right? It ends up being kind of this um, astroturf rather than grassroots thing, which is co-opted uh, in order to serve like 
um, moneyed interests, right, in order yeah. to reduce go- government spending. Whereas part of the frustration with Occupy or Black Lives Matter is, what's your policy agenda? Well, they don't fucking have one because it's not specifically a co-opted thing that has a certain agenda that you pacify and it's done. It's like an ongoing protest against the like ignoring of, of huge swaths of people as, as like not being recognized as human beings in this political community, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a fair distinction. Um, do do we want to um, move on to now that we've been talking about different protest movements? Do we want to move on to the yellow vests a little bit, or do you have some more comments on uh, Judith Butler? Sure, we can transition. Uh, let me just read a few quotes that I think might be helpful. Sure. In situating this, right? So. Um, so one thing to reiterate with, with the Butler piece is that she's saying that can one lead a good life and a bad life, right? Good life here is supposed to be your own life, and bad life means the overall social relations structure, inequality, all those things that you're situated within, right? And so, like, how do you live well when all this shit is burning down, right? And, and I'm sure lots of people can relate to this. Uh, do I just buy fair trade coffee? Do I have to protest all the time? Should I just say, fuck it? We're all going down anyway. Who cares? You know, should I just vote diligently? Should I say electoral politics are bullshit, right? So like, this is the broader thing it's talking about. And so one of the answers is, um, that she posits is that like, certainly people whose lives are not already considered as, as valuable, um, being political in this way, like claiming their rights, and she draws upon this notion of natality um, from Hannah Arendt, which is like just like giving birth is painful, but brings you know something generates something new. So too can political action generate something new, right? Yeah. But there's often suffering. There's often suffering. Um, so then, the question is: Is that resistance enough? And this is what I think. Most of our problems with with the the left usually are it's all critique and no positive vision, right? And so yeah. so it's kind of like is it enough to just demand that the end of the bad shit happens and that you just protest what's bad? What comes next, right? Um, and so so I think that's um, that's part of of you know what the uh, what the response tends to be towards these kind of undefined, amorphous things, whether it's Occupy or Black Lives Matter or the Yellow Vest, it's like, well, what do you want? How can we fix it? What's the, what's the solution? Where's the positive vision, right? Um, and, you know, I, I think that's important, right? Uh, as she writes, can resistance be reduced to protest? Um, so, I mean... I think the answer to that is, is no. And she, she, she suggests that radical democracy, and, and then, as you kind of intimated, um, would be the ultimate vision. And as our friend Dave Kaib tweeted recently, socialism doesn't mean changing one thing. It means changing everything, right? So that's transformation. Uh, but like part of the problem is you can't get to the positive vision until you kind of shake shake up the status quo. And that's what I think is happening from the left and the right. So there's this contestation. Um, now for the yellow vest, right? Um, since I've been babbling a lot, do you want to tell, tell the listeners kind of 
what we're referring to. It started in France and had been going on for a bit, uh, but now is apparently in Dublin as well. Yeah, th- this this strikes me as very similar to the the uh, Occupy protests, which started in New York City and spread around the world in a matter of months. Um, but yeah, so there's the big protests in in France, and now they are in. Um, in Dublin, they have spread out, and and people. It seems like they have glommed onto the yellow vest thing as a sort of like, almost content-free signifier of just sort of dissatisfaction. And um, this didn't look to be like a huge um, protest, but it was December twenty-second. Just reading a little bit from the uh, the Independent in Ireland. Um, you know, they 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 were chanted some slogans. Banks got bailed out. We got sold out. Uh, there's a, a apparently a big uh, uh, grievance here is the just ridiculous price of housing in Ireland, which has has been going up, you know, up and up and up as the uh, economy has recovered. Um, one reason probably is that the, uh, the 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 conservative coalition, which has been ruling Ireland for the last several years, uh, has almost totally stopped uh, construction of of public housing units. Um, and so, what housing is being constructed is, uh, you know, it's it's just like in the United States, it's very high end. Um, you know, they're going where the the profits are, which is. Uh, which is luxury condo, you know, condos and apartments and such. And, and so like the, the people who are in the middle are just getting really squeezed, even if they do have jobs, which most of them do. In fact, I was just looking at the, uh, you know, some, some latest uh, statistics and uh, you know, you look at the, the Ireland gross national product. You want to look at with the case of Ireland, you want to look at GNP instead of GDP because the Irish GDP is hugely inflated because of, uh, uh, basically, they they serve as a tax shelter for a lot of companies. Apple and Google, I believe, have big uh, presence there, and they basically just like allow themselves to be bought off, you know, and book these profits and pay a very a very nominal uh, corporate tax. Nevertheless, the I- Ireland G- uh, GNP has largely recovered from before the Great Recession. The, uh, you know, in 2009, the unemployment rate shot up to like 16% for a while, but now it's down to, uh, I think, just over 5%, about what it was before the crisis. So things are look not terrible, but I think similar to the U.S., there's a lot of stuff swirling around below the surface. And maybe because people are feeling not quite as desperate, they feel a little bit more confident to protest you know, I think this is a kind of a common historical thing where the 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 big backlash doesn't happen in the the pits of the crisis. It happens when things turn up just a little bit, and suddenly there's a spark, and people feel like they're they have just enough confidence to go out and try to get something better. And um, you know, this uh, yeah, that makes sense. That yeah, makes sense. just slight bit bit more background here is that uh, the 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 Irish. Um, banking and eurozone crisis was not the worst but it was pretty bad um you know in 2008 the the irish banking system was hugely over leveraged you know this is one of those countries where the the banks were sort of like iceland um but not quite as bad like uh 
the the banks were their their assets were like many times greater than the total Irish economy, and in the pinch, the government uh, n- basically uh, assumed all of the liabilities of the banks, you know, which had invested heavily in subprime mortgage securities, and you know were were going to go under, and you know. B- Basically, what I, I forget who said this. Maybe it was Adam Tooze, but it was like, for fear of death, the the Irish government committed suicide um, <laughs> because they took line. they took on you know that this is like um, you know you think about the U.S. and its response to the crisis, but U.S. banking system for all of its problems is not nearly as big simply because the U.S. is so rich. Um, you know, its banking system can't get that that large, but the the Irish banking system was like this giant tick, you know, on the on the on the side of Ireland, and they they took on the entire thing, and um, um, you know, it was just it was more than they could possibly have processed, and so they got quote unquote bailed out by the European authorities, you know, the ECB and the European Commission. But it, just like in Greece, to a lesser extent, they had to do a shit ton of austerity, and that's how unemployment got so high. And so now they've had this like sort of like fairly unequal recovery, in which uh, you know like unemployment is down, but the jobs aren't great, and it's it's really hard to like get by, type of situation. And that's and meanwhile, right? Meanwhile, Brexit is looming, and Ireland is going to get kind of screwed, uh, and is trying to figure out how to maintain um, relations with, right, with Britain uh, and also be part of the EU still and, and yeah. the EMU. And so, so like, it, you know, lots of precarity, again, is a, is a good word. Lots of uncertainty, lots of uh, reasons to demand uh, more certainty and more security, right? Um, but maybe we should also back up for those that don't know, even though it's been in the news a lot, what the original protests in France were about and why it's called the yellow vest and, and why the actual protesters are wearing these yellow jackets or yellow vests, right? So did you know, Ryan, that one of the many regulations uh, put in by France back in the day was that every car had to come with it, this yellow vest, <laughs> this actual like safety safety vest? I am not um, surprised. Yes, yes. Uh, so, so what's what's interesting is, and and this is uh, something that I actually read uh, from um, Pascal, you know, Peg, the, the reactionary Parisian, um, which, which is that, you know, Parisians don't own car. It's a hassle to have a car in Paris, right? So, like the, yeah. the well-off, the people that the people that live in the cities, and the cities had been the the, the areas mostly and greatly served by government policy, in you know. Uh, far and above the rural areas. So there's a theme here that kind of parallels the U.S. The, the, the rural areas are kind of left behind in, in a number of ways, right? So literally, no Parisian would have this vest. So so like the actual um, sign that all the protesters have this vest is a visual acknowledgement that these are people from the rural areas who were forced to do things by the government that screwed them and 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 is like a, a beautiful like 
visual reminder that they are been they've been left out of the political economy and the considerations, uh, as well as kind of an indictment of the kind of technocratic liberal policies um, that coupled with the new proposals by Macron, right, to solve climate change by hiking up carbon taxes on the diesel engines that they pushed on the population and all these people in the rural areas that need cars, right, to get around, um, had to, to pay $7 a gallon for gas and, and, and they have to have cars, right? And now yeah. they're going to pay extra taxes. For diesel. So, so like, yeah, for the diesel, sorry. Um, so like the actual, the sense in which the protest is not just an amorphous anger, right? Is this, is, is at least, um, kind of congruent in the rejection of the technocratic bullshit policies that ignore the class issues involved in addressing things like climate change and also ignore the ways in which the powers that be have informed government policy to help the urban rather than the rural population. Yeah, and I mean I should I should probably uh you know preface this by uh you know I'm not I'm not an expert in France by any means. Um I have never even been there. But I think that that uh, it, it seems unquestionable to say that, yeah, just as you say, this this has um, been, uh, you know, a a a the sort of left behind ish in 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 ways which are which are objectionable and you know understandable. Because I think that the the diesel on its own, the diesel tax is probably a good idea, you know, because Europe has been pushing these diesel car engines on on their citizenry for a long time, and then it it turns out that you know Volkswagen has been rigging the tests, like they pollute real bad, and um, you know that that kills people with with lung disease and such. Um, and um, well, you, you you don't you don't have to tax right. You you can you can work it, and I think uh, Matt Brunick has talked about how you do this. You, you can you can shift the yeah. Uh, you give people a compensation. Cost. You you say okay, you got to pay for this, but we're going to give you something that's even more than what you have to pay. You know, to just to be like, yeah, like things are you you got to pay for this. We're gonna like comp. We're gonna we're gonna make it. We're gonna make it better. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna solve the harm in one way or another. Um, but I think, you know, more broadly, it's like Macron, um, you know, he, he governed, he ran as a sort of like all things to all people, kind of Obama type of guy. And his, you know, he, as he governed, as he wrote his, the policies for Hollande before, uh, he, it was this big package of neoliberalism that was supposed to solve the growth. I mean, this is a classic, like, like neoliberal attack on regulations. Regulations like every French vehicle's got to have a, a vest in the trunk. And, and people think, at the, look at that, it's like, oh, this is, this is kind of silly. Like, why do we need this? It's probably holding the economy back. And like, maybe in some circumstances that could be true, but not always, you know, there's the, in chemistry, there's the concept of the rate-limiting reaction. So, like, if you have a bunch of reactions that happen in sequence, then the whole thing is going to go by the speed of the slowest one, you know, the the, the, the weakest link type of thing. And so, you know, 
Macron chipping away at all these regulations, like with his the 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 Macron bill in 2015, and now with a big another big old dollop of uh, deregulation, including a huge tax cut for the rich. I guess France has a big wealth tax that uh, Hollande rolled back, and so like just I mean this is like classic Republican Party politics. Um, he's he's uh, soaking the poor with his with his diesel tax and giving um the middle class a little a little uh, a couple of snippets and the rich just a massive pile and uh it, it's i mean it sucks it's terrible you know it's terrible politics and it's unpopular and apparently also macron himself is a huge douche and and like his whole <laughs> affect just turns people off all the coverage i've read you know they talk to all these rural people like there's some front national you know like the sort of quasi fascist party voters like apparently a lot of those in the uh the, yeah. the protest but then there's you know there's a lot of other people in there too and and they all say the same thing about macron which is that he's an elitist asshole and that is very believable and, uh, yeah, it's an, it's a, it's another instance of the left and the right coming together to uh, hate on the centrist technocratic liberal elite. Yeah, they're not delivering the goods that they promised, and they're and they are you know they're they're delivering for their they they say they're going to deliver broad prosperity, but what they actually do is deliver for their like banker one percent, um, you know, cronies, and you know the 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 the, the irritation and, and outrage is a fairly inchoate, you know, I think pe- probably most people don't have a really clear idea what they're mad about, you know, and a style thing, maybe as much a symptom of as any, as anything else, but it, you know, like, I don't think that p- people don't have to have a super like rigorous no, explanation right. as to what, Look, what's going and, on to be... As- as much as you poo-pooed the butler, she she brought up Wittgenstein to make this point. She says, Wittgenstein remarked, we speak, we utter words, and only later have a sense of their life at times, right? Like, yeah. So sometimes we, we have this kind of intuitive sense that there's something we want to say, but we figure out what it means later, right? And if you look at, like, Occupy, do you know how much shit Occupy got and still gets? You know what I mean? For any number of reasons. Some of it legit, but, like, guess what? 99%, 1%? That came from Occupy. Bernie yep. is definitely, definitely indebted to Occupy. But like part of our inability to see the future and our demand that everything be figured out immediately forgets the way that progress works in this fashion, right? So at first you have the anger and you have the people coming together and you have the resistance to the status quo and, and the critique. But then like that gives space and, and gives the pathway for now, look, the left is saying, Medicare for all, housing for all, sovereign wealth fund, right? All this stuff wouldn't have come. Like that could not have come had you not had the critique first, right? So you have to like make way for it somehow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, you know, there there was a sense, you know, and I was and having, you know, sort of semi-participated in Occupy, Occupy you know, gone to a lot of those, the, the Occupy DC encampment and and talk to some of those people like i definitely see where the critics are coming from with the uh you know the sort the of leaderless stuff yeah the, the yeah. inchoate semi-anarchist sort of like gobbledygook you know and um um you know kind of credulousness about the effectiveness of what what was going on 
but on the other hands, on the other hands, man, that that inchoate anarchist mode was never going to be fucking co-opted, right? It, what happened to the Tea Party happens so easily because if you have a hierarchical movement, it can easily be co-opted. If you, so, as much as like it seems ineffectual to have a leaderless thing, and it seems really dumb that they have like you know all the repeating of the things and all the different like ways that they make it egalitarian. I mean, egalitarianism is good, but like if you have a, a purpose, it's good to have some organization, right? But like on the other hand, it didn't get co-opted. There wasn't there wasn't somebody that said, "Nope, I'm co- occupy means this one thing now, and that's bad actually," because of it turned out to be actually a special interest group, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. I mean, I, I, I do think the the lack of a, um, <clears throat> you know, any kind of like policy organism at all was pretty. I mean, I think it did kind of eventually doom the that movement in itself. You know, because it it was it was just like it it, it couldn't sort of build up and and um, take. A kind true, of root, true. exactly. But I, I do think, you know, I mean, I think that was basically just a symptom of the fact that the left had been completely moribund in, you know, like v- pretty much every Western country for 20, 30, 40. I mean, not, you know, th- this this now, I would say, is the, is the first time since maybe like the 1930s that, that the left has been really... Um, dynamically engaged in this, and it's in a in a position to actually capture power, uh, right? Uh, in right. you know major countries, including the United States, and that you yeah. know, I mean, people the the 1960s get a lot of attention, and they had a lot of good things happen, but it was never as it was never like the New Deal period where the left was in the the driver's seat, you know, it right. was always liberals in the driver's seat. Um, and, and you you want to be you want to be careful though because like the Jonathan Chates of the world think the Green New Deal is too amorphous and not policy specific and so that's a problem right so you you can go too far the other way yes and, and, oh and absolutely like shut 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 down any vision because you you need all the details ironed out before you even do anything um, that's yes absolutely I mean the 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 way I would say is like you have your sort of like broad goal your and you know and like some slogans to go along with it. And then you have a sort of like, you know, napkin sketch policy that that you're sort of like pushing along. So it's like yeah. everyone should have health care. There's the goal. Medicare for all. There's your, your napkin sketch policy. And, um, you know, what the details of that are being worked out, I think, at the moment. You know, people are digging away at that thing. But, you know, it's to- totally at, at, at that, you know. Before you, the, the the time to get actually writing the bill is when you are, when you are have have one power and you are actually yes yes like like right. in Congress like ready and you know to to possibly pass something or start negotiating, um and that you know the problem with the John and you know, I guess the I the, guess maybe we'll, we'll go ahead yeah oh just to finish my thought the the problem with the the shades of the world is that they they are c- transparently levying this procedural criticism in a, in an attempt to shut down the effort it's not a good faith criticism well but i think it's born of this risk aversion that says the status quo is pretty okay and uh you know i think things would be better but uh whoa don't be radical don't just go out there and do something crazy which like 
to go back to the Butler piece, you know how many people are suffering so much right now because of the status quo and literally almost any leftist critique that says we're going to take down the status quo and do something right that helps the people that's going to probably look better right no matter how it cashes out specifically right um the danger of course is that the right-wing populism makes that um something that is exclusive to white people to like kind of those hierarchies that feel left behind because of neoliberalism, like white males, right? Um, White, white Christian nationalism, whatever it is, uh, they have the same grievances, but their solution is to just uh, reduce what the other is rather than like recognize that the other has been harmed. Let's just cut off the other so that I can be like flourishing instead. Right. And so that, that seems like not that difficult a way to bifurcate like good radical visions. And then after that, we'll work the deals, uh, you know, the, the, the specifics out later, but first let's put people into power that have a total rejection of the status quo. Um, and that's why we don't like these little centrist bullshit candidates, um, who essentially are just a new face for the same old neoliberal policies. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's like you... This conversation is already going on. I think in most most Western countries, you know, it's like a, uh, the, the basically status quo versus anti-status quo, and you have your candidates on, on, on the left and on the right, and, um, you know who wins is is you know a, a certainly a a hard thing to predict but you know what the i think the the difficulty and the, the problem you know that i see amongst a, in a lot of countries is the center is 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 patently just sort of melting away you know the support for it is is not there like it just isn't delivering the goods macron's approval rating is like 20 something percent maybe less than 20 percent holland you know before him who was the you know socialist party quote unquote he left office with a approval rating of four percent you know people think that that by uh just going ahead with the what seems to be the cautious approach is is actually the the prudent way this is this is the less risky way to proceed is that you don't want somebody who's like this like you know this Jeremy Corbyn this untested backbencher radical guy who's maybe like kind of weird you know or or uh or uh, who is the guy in France um Mélenchon who who was you know he's doing like hologram um campaigns <laughs> like you know all these all these fringy type of of politicians are are uh you know they're always a little bit odd you know basically by definition Bernie is a little bit odd, um, but if you, uh, you know, if you are in a situation in which the center is collapsing, going for the centrist candidate can be really risky. Um, and that's how we, yes. you know, that's how we got Trump. Basically, is my analysis of the situation. You go, you go for the, you go timid when timid is risky, and timidity yes. gets you failure and trump when you should have gone for broke and you could you know we could have president bernie that's what i think yes yes and it's all the more clear that those that supported bernie 
either experience or at least recognize the precarity and the risk of the status quo, and so didn't see it as a risk, right, to to throw something radical out there, because it's already risky and dangerous for so many people to not have change. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, it was a change election, and the, uh, the Democrats put up uh, another Clinton, another part of the political aristocracy, and Damn it! If they don't learn, they 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 won't learn their lesson. They're going to try to do it again. Um, if if the people don't, you know, force the donor class and, and the establishment and the Democratic Party to do otherwise, right? Um, so. Yeah, I mean, Hillary was a once in a generation awful candidate. I mean, that's 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 scientifically a fact. Um, she <laughs> she had the worst polling of any candidate uh, since the advent of polling, except for Donald Trump. Um, and I think that, you know, just this was the problem with how, uh, the center got so bought into her, like by, you know, by 2012, basically. And they decided that she was going to be the next candidate, not realizing that, you know, she hadn't campaigned since 2008 and she was even worse and more compromised and more unsuitable than she was back then. Um, but let, let me ask you this though. Do you even care in the next election if we have a centrist establishment neoliberal running who polls really, really well and looks like, oh, this will be an easy win against Trump? Even if that were true, isn't that still super dangerous and shouldn't we fight like tooth and nail to prevent that from happening? Well, that yeah, that's what I was that's that's uh, what I was building towards is that, you know, Clinton lost to Trump. Obama beat McCain. But when he didn't fix the economy, then Republicans absolutely stomped the Democrats in the in the midterms in 2010. And they lost control of the House and they lost like, you know, a dozen state legislatures and so forth. And that, would you know, allowed them to, you know, so so like if you have a very charismatic centrist at the top of the the ticket, you know, someone who can give a speech on like Hillary Clinton. Um, then you can win the presidency, but that's not enough. You know, the, our shitty system means that you have to contest all the way up and down the ticket. And more importantly, you have to actually deliver good policy. You can't give wall street, you know, foreclosure factory, um, housing policy. And, And, um, yeah, that's right. And drone the hell out of people and be, be the deporter in chief and the list goes on. Yeah, exactly. And that I think, you know, that is the risk is that you, you, you know, the center's going to want to put up all of the, you know, the, the basically Wall Street Democrats are going to want to put up somebody, anybody who's not Bernie, anybody who won't change the status quo very much, who will just be a sort of Obama 2.0. And um, will be, you know, it looks as though uh, there's maybe probably a recession coming in the next like year or two. Like, like the stock market has been in bad shape. Um, Jesus, like Steven Mnuchin posted this statement where he's like, I've been meeting with all the banking CEOs and everything's fine. <laughs> Which is like, you know, panic. Everyone yeah. panic now. Yeah. Sell everything. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, isn't it isn't it true that economists are terrible at projecting beyond, say, six months? Yeah, but it's terrible at projecting beyond six minutes. There's a, there's, there's the number of comical charts, you know, it's like that one I remember, uh, particularly it's like Greek GDP. What's going to happen to the Greek 
output uh, after they do shit tons of austerity. You know, so it's like after the crisis happens and they're just projecting, it's like going up, going up at a 45 degree angle. Recovery is going to happen. And like, you know, as it progresses and the economy collapses and it goes to like a worse than the Great Depression situation, they're just like they keep doing these lines going up over and over again as the as the actual reality is sort of like at the bottom basement level, you know, so they. Right. They can't predict what's going to happen beyond, you know, th- this is the case against these lukewarmest people who are like, oh, yeah, in 100 years, we're going to be so rich, we can just buy our way out of any climate change problems. So like, yeah, that's a great, you know, thing to hang your hat on. The economic projections yeah. from 80 years from now. You know, it occurred to me. One last thought on, on, on Butler and why mass social movements are helpful as not just a critique, but as perhaps the beginning of a solution. And I think as um, we see with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a lot of the DSA-inspired um, actions, um, not just like running candidates, but also having meetings and coming together in person, are part of... So, so the answer is this. The, the answer uh, to how you get the positive vision is this. So, so Butler writes, if resistance is to enact the principles of democracy for which it struggles, then resistance has to be plural and it has to be embodied. It will also entail the gathering of the ungrievable in public space, marking their existence and their demand for livable lives, right? And she goes on, but... But she says, so within the framework of radical democracy, if I'm to lead a good life, it will be a life lived with others, a life that is no life without those others. Um, and so she goes on, you can't in your kind of remove intellectually solve everything like a policy wonk does. You actually have to come together with those people's lives that have been affected in person, whether it's at a DSA meeting, whether it's at a protest, and realize that you're bound up with each other and that your good life is bound up with their good life and and figure out together what it means to to live a life that uh, manages the precarity, the vulnerability, right? And this is the socialist vision, right? Is to to together have a radically democratic way of co-constituting what it means to not just survive, but thrive, Right. Um, and so like, I guess part of the point is you can't lay out in a paper what that is because what that is, is determined by that process of democracy. And this is a different kind of proceduralism than Shate wants, right? This is a very fundamentally different thing. And it involves that fundamental human recognition. And it's why like the tea party is so different because they got this prepackaged agenda, whereas the left has people of all different backgrounds, classes, colors, ethnicities, trying to come together in this difficult way to figure out how to all not just survive, but thrive. So I think that's a nice way to, to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Trotsky in his, um, history of the Russian revolution has a good metaphor for, um, you know, leadership and political structures as comparing it to like a, a steam piston, you know, and like a, mm-hmm. like a railroad, uh, uh, a train engine, you know, it's like, like, the point of the the piston and uh you know the uh chamber that the steam comes in is to sort of channel the um the force in a productive direction but 
the thing that is doing the work in the steam engine is the steam. It is not the, mm. you know, the leadership mm. or the ideology or any of that sort of thing. You know, so, so if you have if you if you have a a train engine with no coal and no water, nothing right. happens. You know, and I thought that nice. I thought that's a that's a pretty good way of thinking about it. Um, yeah, it's not about you. You know, it's about translating these lived experiences into a productive way, not uh, sort of going out and like like sort of beating people's beating people into submission ideally mm. right and that's why it's emancipatory ultimately rather than uh, a form of domination or power politics it's supposed to be liberatory in that way yeah yeah, yeah nice. it should be well that's it for this episode um we just wanted to say before we go the uh wishing everyone a merry christmas happy kwanzaa hanukkah any other holidays you might be celebrating and uh, thanks for listening over the last few months. Yes, indeed. Whatever uh, makes you festive this time of year, we're we're there with you. So we hope you enjoy it and uh, ring in the new year well. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, we really appreciate the support and it helps us keep this going. 